0: 1 Thessalonians, we are in chapter 2. We want to remember that our Ventura campus will be joining us uh, for the sermon. Let's let them know that we love them and we're with them. (laughs) 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to finish the chapter this week. We did the first half last week, second half this week. The title of this message is Real Ministry Part 2. Last week, Paul was talking about the quality, the integrity, and the tone and the tenor of his ministry there in Thessalonica, and it caused us to think about our own ministries, our own engagement as Christians who are meant to live life on mission, and we'll kind of continue in that same vein and theme in the text today. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 13, go to the end of the chapter, Paul kind of picks it up here midstream, mid-thought. It says in verse 13, And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren have been bereft of you for a short while, in person, yet not in spirit, We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, before us this morning is um, a rich text, a meaty text with a whole bunch of stuff in it. Things that seem unclear and things that will become clear and things that will encourage us and things that will challenge us. All of it, your word. Your living, active, inerrant, enduring, wonderful word. So help us now, God, to hear your word. Help us not merely to hear it, Help us to obey it. Help us to live into it. Please, by the work of the Holy Spirit, cause your word to form our thoughts, our feelings, our understandings, and so our actions. Let us be men and women who receive and obey the word of God. Help me now, Lord, to teach and preach it in a way that's faithful and helpful. We ask these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said in the first part of this chapter, Paul is recounting to the church in Thessalonica the quality and the integrity, the tone and the tenor of his ministry while he was there with them. He's having to do so because he had to leave town rather speedily under duress, under persecution. He more or less got kicked out of town for being there and preaching the gospel. And upon his departure, he was getting some bad press in town. And it was discouraging to the believers in Thessalonica. And they were wondering, is this faith in Jesus Christ, which we have, is this really real? And is this the right thing? And should we stick with this? Because there's a lot of opposition to it. Our neighbors and our countrymen and our culture are disagreeing with this message about Jesus, its exclusivity, and its morality. And so Paul's writing then to them to encourage them that their faith is real and that it's worth sticking with Jesus. And he reminds them of their conversion experience he reminds them of the quality of the ministry that was practiced among them and how they have a real, meaningful relationship with Jesus. And prior to that chapter, he had been thanking God, telling them that he was thanking God in his prayers for them, for this quality of their faith, the reputation of their faith, their stick to itness with their faith in the midst of opposition. And now he begins to thank God again for something about them. You saw it there in verse 13. He says, I thank God for you guys that when you received our message, you received it for what it was, the word of God. You saw this, the word of God, the good news about Jesus Christ, not as another opinion, not as one option among many in a pluralistic culture, not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. And he thanks God that they had that mindset and there was that reception for the preaching there. And he's also expressing faith, Paul is, in his ministry. And I want us to think now about our own lives, our own ministries. We're all called as Christians to live life on mission to engage in the ministry of God for the glory of God in a contrary that, and excuse me, a culture that is contrary and difficult. And I want us to think about Our ministries in reflection of Paul's and what we see about Paul's ministry here is that he had real expectations of God's word, real expectations of God's word. He expected people to receive it as such and he expected it to powerfully work in people because it is God's word. He expected that God's word would perform its work. Think of Isaiah 55. My word will not return void, says the Lord. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And he was speaking God's word again into a contrary culture, a culture of opposition to Christianity, its exclusivity and its morality. And yet he had great faith in God's word that if I'll keep preaching this message if I'll keep living it out, if I'll keep explaining the good news about Jesus Christ and the implications of God's word, God's word will work. God's word will be shown to be just that, God's word and not the opinions of men. Now they lived in a pluralistic culture where there were lots of competing truth claims and we live in that same sort of culture. And there aren't many in our world today who would believe that this book on your lap and on my pulpit is the true, everlasting, powerful, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, absolute Word of God. And that it is. And this text would call us to trust in that and the work that God's Word will accomplish as it goes forth. And so that then encourages us In our own truth-telling in this world. You know, we're Christians. And so we're called to tell the truth about Jesus and about humanity and about God's word and about the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done upon the cross. And we're called to tell that truth in our families, in the midst of our marriages, with our children. We're called to tell that truth in our workplaces. We're called to tell that truth in our schools. There's a lot of opposition to that, isn't there? I mean, go try to talk about the Bible at the workplace tomorrow, see how it goes. <laughs> Better yet, try to bring the Word of God into the classroom and give it some prominence or some attention in most schools and see how that goes. Even in our relationships, in our own places of recreation. But it ought, ought to encourage us that Paul the Apostle didn't shrink back from declaring the Word of God, and nor should we. Especially in days such as this. For such a time as this, we have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus Christ. You are, we are the church. And the church is the stewards of truth. The church is the stewards of God's word. And we ought to proclaim it, speak it, tell it, talk about it, digest it, explain it. As often as we can in this world, with those whom we know and who haven't heard. Because it's effective. He says there at the end of verse 13, God's word is at work in you. Now, brothers and sisters, before we get too excited about proclaiming the word of God to others, we've got to make sure that we are letting the word of God form and shape us. That is a primary privilege, joy, and obligation for the Christian man, woman, or child to be shaped by the word of God. Realizing this, that we don't just read God's word. God's word reads us. We don't just study God's word. God's word studies us. We don't just search God's word. God's word searches us. Look at this passage from Hebrews chapter four. For the word of God is alive and powerful. See that? It's not like any old book, man. It's alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Think of like a scalpel in our language today. Cutting between soul and spirit. What is that? We don't even know. We don't even know what that space is. We don't even really have the grammar to explain that. We try and we sound silly. Where the soul is this and the spirit is this and the space in between is that with. <laughs> but the word of God goes there. We don't even know what it is in the depth of us. But some way here in biblical language, what is being conveyed is that the word of God is alive and it's active and it's powerful. And it goes to the very deepest places of who we are, places that are inexplainable to even us. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Deepest places of our being is the analogy. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You know, last week we addressed the issue of motives a little bit. And motives are tricky, aren't they? Motives are tricky. I mean, sometimes I don't even know what I'm doing, why I'm doing what I'm doing. What are my motives in this thing? Thankful for the grammar the book of Jeremiah that tells me the heart is desperately wicked and full of deceit. Who could know it? We don't often get even ourselves and our own duplicity and our own masking and our own defense mechanisms and the places of woundedness, but the word of God goes there. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires, the deep space and place of motive where thoughts are formed and feelings are formed, and so actions and habits and these things take place. The word of God goes there. The word of God searches us and does a work in us. God's word performs its work in you who believe, he said. That's why, dear brothers and sisters whom I love, it is absolutely imperative a non-negotiable Christian obligation that we have regular rhythms of reading God's word. Come on, can I get an amen? Amen. Listen to me, don't applaud. A non-negotiable, non-arguable imperative issue here that we as God's people, that we as followers of Jesus give ourselves to the regular reading and study of God's Word. You can't possibly tell me that that's not a Christian joy, privilege, and obligation. And don't we need it? Don't I in my messed up life with my messed up issues and my tweaked out heart, don't I need the truth of the Word of God to penetrate to those deep places? to begin to, in a better way, form and inform who I am, you better believe I need the word of God. And it is only by God's word that Christians grow. There are other ways that we grow, but never in lieu of, never apart from, never with the absence of God's word. God's word is imperative for our Christian growth. Look at this passage from 1 Peter. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Right? At some point, we heard the word of God, the gospel. By the work of the Spirit, it took effect in us. We believed and we are born again. The work of God's word. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower falls off. But the word of God endures forever. The word of God endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Next verse. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies. Look at this analogy. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord if your eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are loved by God, that Jesus loves you and gave himself for you and you've been brought into a love relationship with the God of the universe and he's been good to you by grace, then the right response is to long for his word, the word of God, the word of Christ, to long for his word. How? Like a newborn baby longs for milk. How does a Newborn baby long for milk. Oh man, it's a vicious thing, isn't it? It's a vicious thing. Like the babies, they come out and they want and they need the milk. They want and they need the milk and the milk is absolutely necessary. By the milk, their systems begin to develop. By the milk, their bones are strengthened. By the milk, their mind develops and their flesh grows and they begin to mature and they're protected. Their immune system develops and they are protected by the God-given nourishment of the mother's milk. Now this is God's design for Christians. That by his word, we begin to develop and our mind develops and our spiritual bones are strengthened. And we begin to grow with respect to salvation. And we're protected by the effect of God's word in us. Our immune system to the world, the flesh, and the devil begins to strengthen when we're nourished on God's word. Come on. That's the way that it's meant to be. And so you see, we do ourselves a tremendous disservice as Christians when we neglect the word of God. Quite frankly, if you're neglecting the Word of God, if you don't have a regular rhythm of digesting, consuming, reading, thinking about, praying through the Word of God, then you have stunted your growth. Like a baby deprived of the nourishment of a mother's milk. So you're not developing in strength, spiritual strength. You're not developing and mind, a Christian mind formed by doctrine and truth and theology. You're not growing strong spiritual bones. And so you're easily pushed around. You're easily dissuaded. You're tossed to and fro. You're easily taken advantage of by the enemy. It too easily fall to the things of the flesh. Listen to me. God has ordained that Christian men and women and children grow by his word. It's God's gift to us. It's his wonderful, inerrant, living, and active, effective, and powerful word that he has given us for our growth because he loves us. Now this next passage will sting a little bit as if that one didn't. Hebrews, verse five. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Okay, it's talking about trajectory of growth. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. You see, there's supposed to be a a growth pattern in the life of a Christian through the word of God. Then we move from milk now to solid food. My little baby girl, Fifi, 16 months old. Solid food, man. Solid food. It's the way it's meant to be. And God's word is like milk when we need that nourishment and then it's like meat when we need that nourishment. And it provides a growth trajectory in the life of the Christian. But look, for someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Stunted growth. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now there's a little switching to metaphor there. Previously he was talking about the word being milk and now he's talking about the word being meat or solid food. And the idea here is maturity. And the, the, the point of finger in the text is some of us should be more mature than we are. We ought to be leading others to Christ. We ought to be teaching others the word of God. We ought to be discipling others. We ought to be pouring into others. We ought to have an effective truth-telling ministry. But our growth is stunted because we've never given ourselves to the word of God, so we're like little babies. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Is that not a desperate need in our culture today? The ability to discern between right and and wrong. You see, we have to be renewed by the transforming of our minds. Transformed, excuse me, by the renewing of our minds. The truth of the word of God. We are so inundated with half-truths, less-truths, untruths. We need to have the Christian discipline of inundating ourselves with truth. Pure truth. Pure truth. Solid food. Mother's milk. Nourishing, protecting, strengthening, growing. And this is a rebuke to the Christian man or woman who has neglected the word of God. And when we do that now, when we do that, we become shaped by the world. That's the juxtaposition given to us in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, don't be conformed to the image of this world. Don't let this world shape you and mold you. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind through truth. If we don't give careful attention to the truth, we get shaped by the world. But you see, the point is, God's word is meant to shape us. God's word is meant to shape us. Look at 2 Timothy 3 up here. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally in the Greek, God breathed. This is God's word. And profitable for, useful for, okay, effective for these things. Teaching, that is teaching us, reproof, toward us, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now there's the goal. Maturity. Maturity. They were able to live out our Christianity in a contrary culture on mission with God for the glory of Christ so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. But it starts with the word of God, which is profitable, useful for these things. Let me define these things for you. For teaching. Next slide, brother. Teaching. That means God's word tells us what is right. Reproof. God's word tells us what is wrong. Correction. God's word tells us how to get right and training in righteousness, how to stay right. Now, look at that. That's a beautiful little outline for your own personal study of scripture, for your own time in the word. A few weeks ago, I encouraged you to read the Bible and look for four things in any text, right? You remember these, these four Cs? Something that was cool, Something that's clear or concrete. Something convicting and something about Christ. I do that almost every day. A wonderful way to think through scripture. But here's another one. Read any passage of scripture and ask yourself and and engage with it. What is right? What what is this telling me? What what is the word of God saying is, is right? What should I think about right and wrong? What is wrong? Where's the reproof? Where's the admonishment? Where's the revelation of incongruencies, inconsistencies, rebellion to God's Word? How am I being corrected by God's Word? How do I get right? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to forsake? And then what do I need to head toward? How do I stay right? Training in righteousness. Brothers and sisters, and we'll give ourselves to this sort of stuff. The word of God having this work in us. Then we could stand among those who say, we have received God's word for what it really is, God's word. And that's what he says in verse 13 about the church in Thessalonica. So one would, they were so inclined in response to this, ask themselves, am I really receiving God's word as God's word? And if you are, brothers and sisters, that would be evidential. Evidential. Some growth. Nobody's perfect. In fact, we're all pretty jacked up. But some growth. But, but more concretely, just a commitment, just a commitment to the word of God. If one says, I believe that this is God's authoritative, true, enduring forever God breathed inerrant word of God but neglects it, I don't believe you. And we are not among those who have received this message as God's word. If we believe those things about scripture, then we will give it some attention. Am I wrong? Am I too mean? Is this too heavy handed? Is this true? Look what 2 Timothy says. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed but accurately handles a word of truth. Some hard work language there. Be diligent. Present yourself to God as a workman who accurately handles the word of truth. That is the call on every Christian man or woman. And God's word is a gift because in God's word, we discover more about Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. He is the word of God. The more we dive into it, the more we discover of the person of Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. So maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh boy, I'm super busted today. I haven't been given any attention to the word of God. Tomorrow morning, open up your Bible to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, and spend the next couple weeks in Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. Don't read it all at once. Just read a little bit just as much as makes you happy. Just read a little bit tomorrow and then a little bit the next day. Psalm 119, I read it at least once a year and I journal through it and I pray for it. It's pray through it, excuse me, It's all about God's word and how precious and powerful and preserving and protecting God's word is and how we are revived by his word. It's a wonderful call. It's a wonderful place to start if you're struggling with these things. But Paul the Apostle, as a great example, had real expectations of God's word. The second point for this sermon is that Paul had a right understanding of opposition to God's work. He had real expectations of God's word, and he had right understanding of opposition to God's work. Look in verse 14. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Stop right there for a moment. Paul's goal here in writing this is to console the church in Thessalonica because they've been experiencing some persecution, there's been some heat. Right, The culture around them, their own countrymen, their own neighbors, their own community, their own friends, didn't like their Christianity, its exclusivity or its morality. So there's been some, some pressure on them to acquiesce, to back off, to abandon the faith. And Paul here is trying to console them by saying, listen, church in Thessalonica, you're not alone in this. In fact, when the church first started in Judea, that central part of Israel where Jerusalem is. When the, first, when the church first started there, they experienced the same thing from their own countrymen, the Jews. From the religious Jews, they experienced the same sort of rejection, the same sort of persecution. You want them to know you're not alone in that. The church started with opposition The church is growing and you're experiencing opposition. And Jesus told us it will always experience opposition. So he's telling them, it's okay, this is not abnormal. You haven't done anything wrong. Everything hasn't gone sideways. The church started like that. Now, he speaks here about the Jews. And in our post-Holocaust world, these words are abrasive. And, and rightly so. But we got to think about the context of Paul's world. And Paul is speaking purely of religious Jews' opposition to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, and the mission of Jesus Christ. And that was very real in that day and very difficult. The first church was all Jewish people who recognized Jesus as a Jewish Messiah and the opposition there in Jerusalem when the church was born came from Jews. And that opposition followed Paul as he did ministry and mission around the then known world. And Paul is saying these things as a Jew himself. Remember, Paul identifies himself in another book as a Jew of Jews. And so he says in verse 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus. You know, Pontius Pilate was the one who condemned Christ to die, but the religious Jews were the ones that were there singing, yelling, screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And the prophets, he says. God's people Israel had a long history of persecuting the prophets that God sent to them. Maybe we do the same. And drove us out Right, he's talking about the early church there in Jerusalem. They were driven out of Jerusalem; they had to scatter. Acts chapter eight. And he says, "In this, it's not what he says, but it's there. The idea is, in this, they're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men." Now he defines all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That's not an anti-Semite, anti-Semitic statement. The Jews are. Hostile to all men, that's not what he's saying. He's saying all to whom the gospel is going that they might be saved. The Jews are trying to hinder it at that time in this place. He's just calling out clear opposition during that time. And he says some tough stuff about those in opposition. He says in the second part of verse 16, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. Calls it what it is, it's opposition to Christ and his church and his gospel of sin. And that's a weird Bible phrase they always fill up. It means that God has been patient, is being patient, and they're just layering sin upon sin. The same thing is said to the whole world in Romans chapter 2, where it says, when we rebel against God, we are storing up wrath for ourselves. We think that God doesn't care, but in truth, God is patient with us. That's the idea of the phrase. But God will not always be patient. And then he says in the last part of verse 16, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. God will ultimately deal with opposition. In the meantime, his desire is to save all men. And Paul knows that the Jews are part of that. Read later on Romans chapter nine through 11, where Paul says, I would do anything. I would do anything. I would give my life and I would give my salvation if I could, that my fellow countrymen, the Jews, might come to know Jesus. And then he clearly tells us in the middle of the book of Romans that God is not done with Israel. He's not done with his people. And he's still working amongst them. And that Israel will be saved. But here, endeavoring to comfort the church in Thessalonica, he says, I know, your neighbors, your countrymen, your friends, your co-patriots, your community has turned against you because of your commitment to Christ. That's the way it's always been. And we need to hear that it will always be that way. And there is an hour and day, great opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, In this world you have trouble. Jesus said, if they hated me and they crucified him, they're going to hate you. But he also said, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake, for your reward will be great. There's going to be opposition. It's okay. Jesus knew it. The early church knew it. The prophets knew it. Paul experienced it. The church in Thessalonica experienced it. But there is a true source of opposition that we need to be mindful of. Verse 18, he says, We wanted to come to you. Paul wanted to return and visit because his departure was hasty. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us, he said. Satan thwarted us. Sometimes opposition is from people. Sometimes opposition is from Satan. But if we want to push a little further, if we want to dig a little deeper, we realize that in truth, the opposition is always from Satan. He's the source of it. We have a real enemy and it's not people. The real enemy is Satan. The real enemy is Satan. It plays out in the realm of people and politic and persuasion and rhetoric and law and all these things. But people are not the enemy for God so loved the world that he gave his son for them. They're not the enemy, they're the harvest. They're the desire of a God who saves and is mighty to save. They're the mission field. So it's important that we realize so that we can love people who are in opposition to the truth we proclaim. That they're not the real source of opposition. The enemy is. And so that forms the way that we interact then with the world around us. Look what Paul said to Timothy elsewhere. The Lord's bondservant, okay, that's language for a Christian. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach. Okay, that's not, that doesn't say pastors must be. It doesn't say evangelists must be. It doesn't say Billy Graham must be. You must be as a Christ follower. Not quarrelsome. Kind of all able to teach. Doesn't mean you got to teach like this from a pulpit. But that we can explain the truth about Jesus to a world around us who desperately needs, us, needs it. That's, that's, that's on us. Patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. There it is. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. They're not the enemy. We have a real enemy. But we do need to correct. We do need to speak truth into the midst of error. We do need to bring the truth into the story of lies. Speaking truth, correcting those who are in opposition with gentleness. Not with yelling, not with signs, not with brow hammering and head busting and Bible thumping and mean language, but kindness, gentleness, humility, and yet faithfulness and boldness with the truth. Correcting those who are in opposition. Not letting it go. That's hard, right? I I usually just want to let it go. You know, I'm out surfing with my friends and there's some thing that they're talking about and there's this untruth about God or humanity or the way things are and I just want to paddle away and you're in the coffee shop and there's some untruth or you go to your sister's house and she's reading this ridiculous book that's not true and you just want to... I'm not referring to my sister, by the way, <laughs> who listens to these messages. I meant your sister. I saw the book. It's bad. It's bad. And you know, we just kind of want to let it go, but there is a more wonderful, a higher calling upon the Christian. Higher calling to speak truth with gentleness. Now, Now look what's at stake. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the truth of knowledge. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is not to shame them. The goal is not to win in the political realm. The goal is not to have the most power The goal is not to be right. The goal is that they might be saved because God loves them. And that has everything to do with our willingness and our mode and our approach to communicating truth. Because there is a real enemy. Verse 26 that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's heavy stuff. That's heavy stuff. Because we we know these people—they're our neighbors, they're our friends, they're our coworkers, they're our schoolmates, they're our family. Second Corinthians chapter four says, "If anybody doesn't get the gospel, their eyes are blinded to it. They've been blinded by the god of this world, lowercase G, Satan, so that they might not see the glory of the gospel of God in Christ Jesus." See, there's there's something at stake here. Hence, this wonderful calling. That's why Paul had just great, great, great bravado in preaching the gospel and telling the truth because there's so much at stake. And he knew about real opposition. Sometimes it comes from people, sometimes it comes from the devil, but it's always about demonic opposition. And we can see men and women delivered by the truth of the gospel of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Amen? In the end, brothers and sisters, Jesus wins. Amen. Now, that's not the end of the sermon. Don't get excited. One more point. The final thing we see about the text is that Paul had, and I hope that we will have, reason to rejoice at the coming of Jesus Christ. Reason to rejoice at the coming of God's Son. Verses 19 and 20. He says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. New Living Translation helps us understand that verse a little bit. It's a little more clear. Pop it up there, brother. Thank you. After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Paul is rejoicing in the fact that he had obeyed God God and God's call to be on mission. He went to this place in Thessalonica. He engaged in preaching the gospel. There was a church that was planted. There are men and women who were saved. There are lives being transformed. And Paul says with great confidence that this brings him joy and that it will bring him reward when Christ returns that his life has counted for something. And when we make our lives count for Jesus, there is always return. And Jesus spoke in the gospels repeatedly over and over again about the fact that we are stewards of his truth, commissioned representatives, and that he's given us gifts, resources, talents, opportunities. To be used for his purposes. For his glory. For his mission. For the telling of the good news of Jesus Christ in the world. And he was explicit that when we do that, there will be reward. I mean, he just says it. He contrasts the unfaithful and the faithful steward. And if you're faithful with your life for the purposes of God, there will be great reward. And Paul knew this. He believed it. And he says, hey guys, you... This church that we helped start, I'm stoked about it. And I'm stoked about when the Lord comes, I can expect reward and will have reason to rejoice. Jesus wanted to give us this posture explicitly, set it at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Speaking there of the church who's called to be faithful with a mission in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming and when he does and receives the church unto himself, we will be rewarded or not, God bless you little baby, for our faithfulness or lack thereof. This is explicit in Scripture. Paul was looking forward to this because he had obeyed God's call in his life. He endeavored to let his life count for Christ's purposes. He knew that he belonged to Jesus who loved him and gave his life for him. And he figured that if Christ would die for me, then surely I can live for him. So much so that he would say in another letter, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life has been subsumed by the glory and the purpose and the power and the cause and the reality of Christ, he would say. So it mattered to him that he was a man who was engaged in God's things. And it matters to Christ. You're his. He made you, he bought you, he's redeemed you through the cross and he's got a purpose for your life. In whatever station you are in, you're a stay-at-home mom. That's your place to endeavor to be faithful to Christ. You've got some sucky job you hated. (laughs) Why not endeavor to be faithful to Jesus in that place? You've got a good marriage, you've got a tough marriage. Be faithful to Jesus in that. You've got kids, I've got a son, I've got a daughter. Be faithful to Jesus in that. You've got neighbors, you've got friends, you've got community, you've got family. To be faithful to Jesus as who you are, with what you know, with the tools and the gifts and the resources God has given you, within your sphere of influence and maybe beyond to those who haven't heard yet. The call on every Christian man, woman, and child is to be faithful to the cause and the purposes of God. And for that, there will be reward Or not. Look what it says in Corinthians. Our goal is to please him. Speaking of Jesus. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. Okay, speaking of the church, this is not judgment for sin. This is judgment for faithfulness, right? In Christian mission with reward or not. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. The idea there is valuable or invaluable as Christians living out Christian mission. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord. Oh man, this is tough stuff. Our fearful responsibility to the Lord. We work hard to persuade others. I love that phrase. Look at Paul. We work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere and I hope you know this too. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Because Christ loved the world, because Christ loved Paul, he was compelled to take the good news to the world. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Since Christ gave his life for you, then the call, the Christian call is to no longer live for ourselves but to live for Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, that, that, that hits home. Because I'll tell you, I, I want to live for myself. I want to live for my ideas and my pleasure and my comfort and my stuff. But there is a higher, more wonderful call on my life. There's a higher, more wonderful call on your life. It doesn't mean you need to forsake your life as it is. It means you need to make and let Jesus be Lord of your life as it is to live for his purposes. Look what Paul says. We worked hard to persuade others. Have you ever for a day in your life worked hard to see anyone come to Jesus? then what will be your joy and glory on the day of Christ's return when he comes with the intention of rewarding his church? What will be your joy and glory? Paul was able to say, this church in Thessalonica, there it is, Lord, excited about reward. To what will you point? If Christ loves us and gave himself for us, is it too much that we would live for his purposes in the world and work hard to persuade others of the love of God? There's still time to do all the other stuff. It's a long life. There's 24 hours in the day. We can still surf and have fun and have good food and hang out with the family and go camping and have a job and make money and buy some junk and see some stuff. There's plenty of time in the day to live your life and be faithful to Jesus with your life. And I would be an unfaithful pastor today with this text before us if I didn't call us to give careful attention to it. Because you matter to God and his purposes. What will your epitaph be? You know what an epitaph is? A little thing that's written on your tombstone. When you die, will anybody think to say anything about your faithful service to Christ? Or will your life be represented just by the dash in between two days? Will anybody even think to say, you know, it was a hard road, but she lived for Jesus. You know, there was a lot of opposition, but she engaged in mission. You know they went for it and they took the gospel here and they stood firm on truth here and they, they they fixed their eyes on Jesus and ran with endurance the race set before them. What will your epitaph be? Will there be anything to say? There would have been something to say about Paul. Look what he says at the end of his life in Second Timothy. This is the end of his life. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He's going to kick the bucket. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. God's plan for his life. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Reward which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To love his appearing, to look forward to his coming is to be faithfully and fervently engaged in his work and his mission. And don't you want to be able to say at the end, like Paul said, I fought the good fight. I finished the course and I've kept the faith. Listen, you've only got this life to live. And it's meant to count for Jesus. There's lots of stuff that's important to us and lots of other things that we will do. But can't we at least endeavor to work hard to see the gospel go to the world because God loves the world and gave his son on the cross for every man, woman, and child. I have fought the fight. Stayed the course. kept the faith. May God give us, each one of you, and me, and we together, grace. Grace. And leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit to live for Christ's glory at this moment in history. Amen? And Lord, we need help with these things. This wonderful grace that we've been shown through Christ, we, we want it to have a powerful effect in our lives. We want to be able to say with Paul, I, I worked hard for the purposes of God and the glory of God. But Lord, we just, you know, we have busy lives and stuff going on and we have heartaches and some of us feel trapped and we don't know how to do that. And help us to think it through. Help us think it through. What does it mean to be Faithful to who Jesus is in my home, at work, in my recreation, in my community. Help us with that, Lord. We, we want our lives to count for you. We, we need you to lead us, Holy Spirit. Lead us in paths of righteousness for thy namesake. Teach us, Lord. Reprove us, correct us, train us. Show us where we need to repent today. We've given ourselves too much to lesser things. Show us where we need to press in to who you are and what you're calling us to. Lord, I know, I know, I know that I've been heavy-handed today. I hope that I've been faithful, that you, Holy Spirit, would come and help now and pour the love of the Father into our hearts, that there be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we would be greatly encouraged, respired, even pushed to be faithful in our lives for your glory for our well-being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.